Chandler being him, he's kind of a high-strung guy. And he's like, I wanted to get up on the stage and punch him. It's like, Jesus wants the rose. Impress them on your children. Impress them on your children. Impress them on your children, yeah. Talk about them when you Hello, and welcome to the Theological Family Ministry Podcast, a podcast for parents as well as children and youth ministry leaders. We are dedicated to showing how theological study and biblical application relate to the discipleship of children and youth. As always, we're hosted by Pastor Ben Palaz and Pastor Tony Trussoni. Good afternoon, Ben. How are you doing today? I'm uh, doing pretty well. Enjoying the weather. It's getting slightly more like fall down here. I mean, it's still kind of warm, but, you know, not it's not summertime, so that's something to be thankful for. How about you? Yeah, doing, I'm doing well. So it's been a really, really busy season for our family. So, uh, you know, a lot of uh, travel and stuff like that coming up. So, uh, but exciting. So, and uh, it's, you know, really gearing up for that fall stuff. It's funny, by the way, I was talking to somebody who listened to podcasts, and I think we give the impression that we care more about sports than we actually, in fact, do. But uh, it is <laughs> <laughs> for, uh, you know, our team, some of our teams, it's been an interesting time. And I think you explained to me, I mean, it's a, Exciting time for the Braves, right? Even though they'll probably get killed by the Dodgers. Uh, this, yeah, they're they're getting close to locking in a fourth straight division title, but I'm not optimistic about the playoffs. Is it really going to be four straight division titles? That's amazing. Yeah, they've they've really the last few years with uh, Brian Snitker, they've done well. So they re- right. even though the the GM that sort of helped build this. Uh, was cheating you know it's paying off long term yeah yeah that is awesome so i'm glad to hear that's working out for them so we uh the orioles not so much so but uh you know i've been a little bit of times focusing uh getting back to my roots and uh, you know purely speaking uh you know the the young tony the young teenage tony was a brewers fan and the brewers are doing a lot of time and money at miller park right Uh exactly yeah actually it's interesting i did spend a lot of time and i remember in high school i i had i i brought a book uh a purity culture book to uh, Miller Park to read right before a ball game because I would get there way before ball games. So, uh, th- so that kind of really transitions to. Did you uh, bring any purity culture books to Braves games when you're in high school? I never did. That's funny because you know we talked about John Piper one time reading at baseball games. I, I didn't know that you also you didn't exactly read it during the game, but still. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So, I mean, the Brewers were pretty terrible. So uh, back then, so it might have been wise. <laughs> Really do, I mean, back then, I think the star player was Jeff Jenkins, uh, who uh, was not a great player. I mean, he was fine. Yeah, they, they're good this year, though. They are, definitely. So, anyway, so uh, that kind of transitions us uh, awkwardly, as always, into talking about our topic for today. Uh, I wanted to talk with you today about purity culture, Ben. So, uh, I want to ask then, what experience have you had whatsoever with Christian purity culture? And, and maybe you could define it. Uh, well, actually, we'll define it in a bit. So, uh, so, what experience have you had with Christian purity culture? Well, I probably got it more from the school that I went to. I went to a Christian school that was more of a, you know, kind of a broad slice of evangelical life. I mean, there were Southern Baptists and Assemblies of God and Presbyterian and who knows what else. Um, the church that I went to until I was in high school was, we were fundamentalists, but not like angry fundamentalists, you know? Um, and so there was some things about mainstream evangelicalism, like some of the stuff with purity culture and the uh, literature there that just wasn't as prominent. I mean, surely we were told, like, you shouldn't have sex or something, but um, it was not the same kind of just harped on all the time. Whereas I do remember it in our school's chapel, there being more discussion of that. Uh, we actually had this chapel one time. It was kind of a scare session, and they brought in this uh, – I think she had been an uh, OBGYN – and she yeah. brought in this nice slideshow for us that day. And she had this really aggressive demeanor. And she just kind of up there like, well, see, in you know, the first slide I remember she put up. And you, you're looking because it's very zoomed in. And I'm like, what is that? And then you go, oh, that's what that is. There's 
mushroom looking things growing off of that body part yeah. and uh, I mean it was just one slide after the next it was terrible and uh, you know I didn't at that point need to be convinced that I, I needed to avoid sex outside of marriage and I'm sure that's what God wanted and that was good for me but it just was like yeah I really don't want that but there was another guy I knew I wasn't really friends with him but he was known for being pretty worldly and he was up on the front row and um, he was asleep like it just really had no effect on him. Okay. <laughs> now I don't know how he slept through that, but nothing else for the shock and entertainment value. But yeah, I mean, how about you? Yeah. So I didn't have that show. I probably would have been the one to fall asleep. Actually, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but this was before I was a Christian, but I went, uh, a church group took me for free to the Passion of the Christ when it was first in movie theaters. And I was getting nasty looks because I was the only one in the whole showing that was eating popcorn the whole movie. <laughs> and like the really violent, vulgar part. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure you can kind of picture that about me, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say this was uh, not really, I mean, I alluded to my involvement in purity culture to some degree before, but it's not really what I was raised in. You know, it was, I was not like raised up in the purity culture, I, but I was exposed to it as a teen. And it felt kind of weird, like, you know, coming into youth group with no background in it. And then all of a sudden hearing these things, uh, I actually, it's in my youth group, like half the people or probably three quarters had purity, had uh, those purity rings. And, uh, I, if I remember correctly, I know a lot of people had them and, you know, I think most of them got them from their parents. And I, I think at one point I felt jealous. Uh, and I went to a, there was a Christian bookstore in our city and as a new Christian, uh, and I, I went in and I intended to buy myself a purity ring. I don't think that's how it's supposed to work buying yourself, uh, but I ended up buying a book instead. And I'm, I'm probably grateful for that investment instead. I think it was a John MacArthur book. So, uh, but, uh, it, it is funny though despite the fact that I wasn't really as much raised in it, um, I did embrace elements of it. I think I became kind of pretty proud through purity culture. Uh, you know, I uh, that God was really gracious to me, uh, that he really spared me from, you know, losing really losing my virginity before marriage. And I know most Christians, probably know most pastors that I know, that's not true of them. And I, I pretty quickly became proud through that. And I think the purity culture kind of latched on to, you know, probably part of my part of my ability to get maintain my purity in that kind of sense was me being obnoxious rather than <laughs> being godly at times. <laughs> so I, it wasn't great for me in some ways, though. Mm. Now, now, what was purity culture exactly, Ben? And is that a dead thing? Is that just a product of the 90s? I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know. If you look it up on Wikipedia, if there's a definition. But uh, I would define it as just some very specific teachings about dating, marriage, sexuality, all of that, um, phys physical intimacy. And kind of this is how you should do it. And uh, do it in the sense of this is how you should approach this, you know, and it was very, uh, I don't know, it could be heavy handed. It was emphasized a lot. And I understand to an extent why, because when people hit puberty, it's like, oh, wow, like y'all could get pregnant or get somebody else pregnant or, you know, get these awful diseases on the slideshow here or whatever it may be. And so um, it was emphasized a lot in Christian and even evangelical Christian youth groups and churches, that kind of thing. I would say that it's probably not dead. Um, I mean, it's not, I don't hear tons and tons about it in, in a sense of uh, like I did, uh, though I've seen it come under fire in the last few years, sometimes even to the point that it's like you throw the baby out with the bathwater <laughs> and uh, just, you know, just free love or something. I, I, you know, I'm kind of exaggerating there, but it, it has come, uh, and I think rightfully so there's some, some stuff that was wrong with it. Not everything about it was misguided, but I think it was misguided in some ways or the way it went about. And I'm sure you know, there was some profit seeking, uh, that became part of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
you know, I, I would describe it, I mean, similar to what you said. I mean, it's really, it's a movement that kind of started in the 90s. In a way, actually, I've read some kind of secular histories of it, and that it really argue that it goes back to the 1890s in some culture of the 1890s. Uh, but, like you know, Victorian. I, yeah. Oh, exactly. And I, that being said, I don't think like Josh Harris was uh, writing, you know, writing in the 1890s about purity culture. So uh, but, uh, <laughs> it, it really elevated chastity until marriage, which is mostly is a good thing in a lot of ways. I mean, that was really one of the big focuses of this. Uh, and, and one, some of the things involved, yeah, I mean, have been and continue to be purity pledges. Uh, which, spoiler alert, they didn't work, uh, that purity balls, which that is weird. That's just one of the weird ones, the purity balls. And uh, I've never heard of that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll have some fun. Uh, and uh, purity balls, uh, basic purity balls is a thing. Uh, it's an, it's more common in Texas specifically in Oklahoma for some reason, uh, but it's all throughout the country. And it's, uh, it's like a daddy daughter uh, prom type thing. That's about purity. It's uh, yeah, it's like, it's really weird. So it's different. So, so okay. some like kind of big 12 country. Yeah, exactly. So, and, uh, the, uh, and yeah, and it's really involves a lot of youth group lessons. I mean, youth groups became a big source of purity culture stuff. So it was really popularized by book like books, like true love weights and stuff like that. So, and, and the, and there's so many corny riff offs of that true love dates, you know, whatever, <laughs> but, uh, by Josh Harris, uh, and the teaching still exists. I actually remember recently, I was talking to some teens about, you know, uh, actually that, that were, you know, young teens, young senior hires. And, uh, I was giving a lesson kind of about how sh- we should not have shame and, and how shame can be a dangerous approach to sanctification and, and really about God's forgiveness if they messed up. And I mentioned this purity culture stuff as if it was something that wasn't that relevant to them. And I gave like an example, uh, somebody asked an example of it. Uh, and there was this old dumb illustration of a chewing gum that is used like, you know, that if you have sex before marriage, it's like you're chewed up chewing gum that you're kind of, nobody wants it. And, uh, the, and those teens all were like, yeah, yeah, we've heard that. Uh, a different youth pastor had told them that. And, uh, so, you know, within the past five years, so that's kind of a statement that it's still not dead by any stretch of the imagination. So, uh, now with sexual purity important for young people, my heavy guess is that you're going to say no, obviously I think you're going to say yes. Yeah, and that's been the concern I've had with some, and I, I've not dug into this. Probably the same way that you have. You've you've spent a good bit of time the last several years um, working with teenagers, whereas I interact some with teenagers, but that hasn't been my focus. And so, thankfully, that is not something we've had to really drill down on with kids. Uh, though you're starting to lay the the groundwork for those kinds of things with kids, but that's more for their parents to do. But yeah, I mean, sexual purity is important for teenagers or for uh, adults, and so it's it's not something that we should neglect. It shapes who you're becoming, and if you are not walking in purity, uh, as the, the Lord commands us to, then, I mean, it can produce real damage, and it can produce regret and all kinds of problems uh, that you're going to be inviting into your life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say beyond just saying that sexual purity is important for young people, I mean, sexual purity is important for all people. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I think that's going to be one of the things that I think the, the purity movement missed was that it's not just, you know, it's not just these stereotypes. Sexual purity is important for, you know, uh, godly couples in the old folks' homes. Uh, you know, I mean, it's true. Uh, young people are often more tempted. That is without any question. I mean, there's even biblical passages that refer to it. So, uh, but and waiting for marriage is still right as far as it depends upon you. And, and that's one thing I think it needs to be said in this. As far as it depends upon you, uh, I actually even just yesterday I was watching something with my wife and a politician uh, back in the '70s made a joke about uh, the shame of a woman giving giving away her purity. Uh, I think giving away her virtue before marriage and actually sometimes that cannot be helpful because the reality is sometimes it's not dependent upon you there are cases where you know women are are mistreated raped uh and abused in horrible ways even by relatives uh but you know as far as it depends upon you it is obviously wise and godly to wait for marriage 
Yeah. What does the Bible say about sexual purity, Ben? Well, I'm actually um, getting ready to preach in, uh, from First Thessalonians soon here, and I've got this just happened to have it open on my little book proper up thing here. And First Thessalonians four says, "This is God's will for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality or pornea." Uh, and so, there's other places where it says that if you if your life is marked by pornea, by sexual immorality or impurity, then you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Um, not in, like in First uh, Yeah First Corinthians, Paul warns that. Uh, he, and he, he names a number of things. He doesn't just limit it to those who are sexually immoral, uh, but he does include that. And he says, you know, that if you do that, you, your life is is this. You won't inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. And so we can be redeemed from a life of sexual immorality. I mean, Jesus had prostitutes who were coming to him, and so uh, it's not the irredeemable sin, you know, the unforgivable sin. Uh, but it is a, if you're walking in impurity, it is a mark of those who don't know God. But God's people are to be marked by purity in their sexual life. And so it's, sometimes I think we use the word sexual purity in the sense of like sexual abstinence. Um, and I mean, you can be a married man or woman and be sexually pure. Yeah. Uh, at least that, I mean, as I see scripture def- describing it. Um, but sexual purity has boundaries in, in the the covenant relationship that God has given us for it to flourish, and so um, there's I mean, scripture speaks to what it is, and then to to its opposite gives us warnings. And uh, yeah, I, I've got a friend, you, you know him as well from college, and he and I probably would not agree on everything theologically, uh, but he made the statement to me in college, and I think he's right. And he said one of the biggest things. Uh, when you look at Christians and non-Christians, uh, when you look at like dividing lines, he said how they handle money, how they handle family, they handle sex. Those are some of the biggest dividing lines. And I think he's right. And and this is one of those key areas. That's good. So those are some good Bible verses. I think some good biblical perspective on that. So uh, the only thing I would really add that actually you took a lot of my verses. Thanks, Ben. So. <laughs> the Hebrews thirteen four actually, and I've been I've taught this to young people multiple times, and it says, "Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, adulterous." And this kind this passage so lifts up a, a kind of biblical purity, but and I think in that even I, I see this even has implications for young people that are not married. You know, seeking, that's something that, that can be their goal, is an undefiled marriage bed, you know, uh, and holding marriage in honor and the beauty of sex inside of marriage. So that's the only thing yeah. I would really add to that. So now how does... And I think that, that's a good one to bring out too, though, because it's, sometimes you could always come away with the idea that sex was itself like this bad thing, like Christians should not talk about it, um like it whatever it's just sort of it's there and yes we know it okay moving on you know yeah yeah absolutely so but uh now how does uh or did at least the purity movement go amok i think it made promises that it couldn't back up or couldn't guarantee so sometimes you know if you wait to have sex until you're married and then if you do that then you're gonna have a great marriage and a great sex life and be healthy, wealthy, and wise, or whatever. Um, that was one of those things. I think, too, uh, getting super specific on what the Bible says, what the Bible requires, versus giving room for Christian freedom and wisdom. Sometimes making prescriptions like, this is what it looks like. And, I mean, we see some, I guess you could say, descriptions of what happened in the New Testament and the Old Testament in those cultures. I don't know that that's always meant as prescriptive for us. You know, like Joseph and Mary were betrothed. Um, I don't think that means that the Bible is teaching us we should enter into arrangements called betrothal. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, Isaac and Rebecca, uh, you know, they sent off, go get a wife. Hey, here's your wife. Um, that's what they did. Um but when it comes to our situations, and I've never—I don't think I've really heard anybody uh, promoting arranged marriages. Maybe there's some wisdom to it, but you know, I'm not gonna—I'm not planning to arrange them for my children. 
Um, but yeah, the Bible, I think there there is room for Christian freedom here and wisdom. Um, and to some of the stuff with, I mean, you, you see it in particular with Josh Harris, but the the love of celebrity culture mm-hmm. and and stuff like that. Um, I think that ended up giving Josh Harris a platform, and that wasn't necessarily his fault. I mean, he's a charismatic guy uh, who then became theologically kind of charismatic and stuff like that. But anyway, um, it did. I don't know. I, so there, there were. There's a lot more there to it. I think yeah. we could say. But uh, well, I mean, what do you see wrong with it? Yeah. So how the purity movement can go amok to me, I think what you said is really great. I'll add, I think it can kind of create a prosperity gospel. You kind of alluded to this, but I mean, you hear a lot of the rhetoric. I remember, I remember in high school, you know, a lot of people teaching, you know, if you wait till marriage, it's going to be, you know, the best sex you can possibly imagine, which like, how do you compare (laughs) if you've never had it before then, but yeah. You know, and uh, all these kinds of things like, you know, you're going to have this immaculate, amazing life in this life if you manage to wait till marriage. And it overpromises in ways that that are frankly absurd. And I think, you know, we've been married uh, over 10 years and I don't think it's any anything inappropriate to our listeners to say that. I, I think there's no question that, you know, our first year, I mean, thing, things are better now for almost any married couple, any couple that's been together a significant amount of time. It's better after time rather than that incredible honeymoon that all the purity culture describe, right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, I was at a. a do you know the Beta Club? I you, the Beta Club. No, I don't. I'm just on that. It's a high school thing. Like I don't even remember. It's something about serving in your community. But we went to the state convention in Atlanta, um, and there were like thousands of people there from all over the state, and they brought in some guy who apparently was a Christian, which this was not a Christian organization. So this is mostly public school kids. And the guy, I was surprised when he got up there and he was like, you know, saying something about sex and how it's good. He's like, but you need to wait until you get married. And then when you get married, get some Gatorade and put it in fifth gear. And, you know, of course the whole room of teenagers is like cheering and applauding and losing their mind. But I mean, it's that kind of idea. It's not. Like it's like medically, it's ridiculous. We don't go. I mean, legitimately, medically, it's ridiculous. But uh, and I think further, even more significant than that, it can create a substantial amount of shame that is just not helpful. And with it, pride. I mean, I have no uh, doubt whatsoever. That you know that you know I was married at twenty three and a virgin, and uh, I was. I, I'm married 22 rather and a virgin, but I have zero doubt that there are men that were my age uh, that were godlier than me, that are godlier than me, that were not virgins when they got married. And, and I don't think the purity culture had any concept of that really. Uh, and, you know, uh, just a, a real, especially towards women, a kind of, you know, that, uh, you know, you're a hussy type thing. And not just that, a substantial sexism. I mean, a great deal of purity culture works rely upon a, a misfounded uh, mentality that, you know, all men are hypersexual and, you know, visual and women are not at all, you know, and, uh, and, you know, and that women are having sex before marriage just because they're pressuring into the guys and, you know, and all of these kind of things are just, are going to hurt women rather than helping anyone. Yeah, I think those are some good points. So now was it helpful to regard those who sin sexually as used pieces of chewing gum or not being worthy of wearing a white wedding dress? I know multiple youth leaders that would say you, you have sex before marriage. You can't wear a white wedding dress. Is it helpful to use this kind of mentality, these kind of rhetorics? Uh, no, I mean, it, it, it is a scare tactic or a shame tactic. And that's not generally going to change people's hearts. Um, have you heard the Matt Chandler story about like who wants the rose? No, I haven't. Okay. And again, not to put him on a pedestal. I mean, I think he's a faithful preacher, but um, he was a fairly young believer and he was at some sort of, you know, purity culture kind of youth rally. And I think he was maybe early, maybe he was a college student or something like that. And he was, uh, there and this guy takes this nice rose out and he's like, Hey, I got this great rose. And then he's, Oh, you want to see it here? Let me, let me show it to you. And so he starts passing around the crowd 
And then he goes on doing his thing. And then by the time the rose gets, he gets the rose back and the thing's all mutilated and bruised up. And he's like, see this rose? This is what it's like when you, you know, sleep around. Who wants this rose? And, you know, Chandler being him, he's kind of a high strung guy. And he's like, I wanted to get up on the stage and punch him. It's like, Jesus wants the rose. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but it really is like, well, amen. I mean, yes, Jesus came not for the well, but for the sick. And uh, not that we encourage, we don't sin that grace may abound, but the kinds of tactics just scare people into obedience or shame them into doing what's right rather than their hearts Mm. doing it because they want to. Yeah, that's a good uh, illustration. I've never heard that. That's that's really good. So I could see Matt Chandler doing that. Yeah. Now, yeah, I'll add, you know, I have heard the white wedding dress even in the past five years thing. And that is just, I, you know, I'm a history nerd. That's just bad history. The white wedding dress has nothing to do with purity. It is entirely a product of uh, a symbol of wealth. I mean, most people that waited till marriage in history did not wear white wedding dresses because they couldn't afford <laughs> white wedding dresses. It has nothing to do with purity whatsoever. And it's not helpful to create these false histories to induce shame upon people. So, uh, and I mean, as you alluded to, we are made pure in Jesus. I mean, the person that has sinned the worst, the person that's been passed around like nobody's business is made pure and holy in Jesus. And some who are not, not virgins, like I said, can be godlier, can be profoundly godly. I mean, that's I mean the example of the Apostle Paul. I mean, he killed people. <laughs> he ordered the killing of people. And, We're looking for a pastor. Oh, look, we see he used to be a terrorist. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, And I think this makes sex into the same kind of thing that porn does, really. I mean, this is like, I mean, people talk about what porn does to sex. And I think that purity culture, this approach to sex, is, is just doing that same kind of damage. It's really about, you know, uh, it's really about this kind of, you know, expression of ecstasy. When in reality, I think it's primarily biblically about intimacy and an expression of love for one another rather than, you know, having this, ex- you know, ecstasy on your honeymoon. So. Yeah. Uh, and I don't see, I don't feel like you hear much of that in purity culture rhetoric on sex. So, uh, and yeah, I mean, Jesus, you look at Jesus. You said, you know, Jesus taken her. I, I've studied Hosea, Hosea and you know, Hosea is a great minor prophet where he's commanded to marry a Gomer who, you know, who kept passing around a rose, let's just say, and really, really bad ways. And uh, and that's really meant to be an illustration of Jesus and Hosea's love for her. Jesus married what was way worse than Gomer. He, I mean, we're way worse than that, even regardless of our purity, and Jesus marries us and through the church. So, Yeah. Anyway, now does shame actually produce godliness? I think you've alluded to your thought that it does not, but does it? No, I mean, grace does. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul's, Paul tells them to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So you put forward effort, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you work because God is working in you. His grace is, has been already given to you in Jesus. That like Right before that, he's talked about how Jesus humbled himself and, and gave himself for us. And so you live a life consistent with that now because he's at work in you. Mm-hmm. It's not, well, look at look at all he did for you. Can't you just do a little bit? You know, I mean, the, the logic is completely different. Yeah, so I, I think it's, uh, I mean, not I, I agree with you. It definitely does not. If at best, it's going to cause us to hide our sin better, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, we instead should have conviction that leads to repentance and and grace rather than shame. I mean, conviction is the model rather than shame always. Uh, and purity culture it can substantially miss uh, an important doctrine when we look at shame, and that's imputed righteousness. The idea that Jesus gives us His righteousness in our place. I, I think a biblical call to holy actually kind of says like you know when you look at the mirror you don't see your shame you actually see that we see perfection and because we've been given perfection we've been clothed of perfection and so be who you've already become through jesus and to me that that's more doable that's more manageable that's more you know by the power of god something that we're able to strive towards rather than make yourself pure yeah, and I mean, there's uh, there's a helpful book that talks about sanctification, or becoming holy, or being holy in the New Testament. Um, it's in 
you know the gray books that the D.A. Carson edits, the new studies of biblical yeah, theology? Yeah. It's one of the first one. It may even be the first, first or second one. And it's called Possessed by God. And he talks about how most of the uses of when it talks about sanctification, that kind of stuff in the New Testament is more of a positional, like you are holy, you have mm-hmm. been made holy. And sh- yeah, there is emphasis given to, and you should grow in holiness, uh, like the one from First Thessalonians 4 that I mentioned earlier. But a lot of them is just, this is what God has done. He has set you apart and brought you into to his realm. And so, yeah, like you said, grow, be what you are. Amen. So, now do abstinent pledges, purity balls that I explained to you, uh, or purity rings ensure that our, you know young people are actually going to stay pure? Just do you have to wear like cowboy hats and boots to those purity balls? It was out in Texas and Oklahoma. I don't know. I'm just. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so. I don't watch those movies, but I know that uh, I think Borat or whatever uh, that uh, you know. There was a character, Borat, and apparently there was a purity ball in his most recent film that was like took place, was recorded two years ago, where he goes to like a, a purity ball, and I think in Texas. <laughs> okay. Um, well, no, I mean, I think some people who do this, they may take their vows and their pledges seriously. Uh, and I think I've even talked to people, and I, I know people that. They did. Their parents gave them a ring or something like that. And it was something they did take seriously. And I think even it came to mind at points when temptation entered. I know one person that's come to my mind that that's was something that it was not just a, oh, everybody's doing it. Let's do it. Um, I think for some, it can show the, the solemnity of holiness. But there's probably a lot of people that it's just a, it's an event, you know. I mean, it's like those, those youth camps where – they're singing a long time and it's like, Oh, come on down to the altar, come down front. And then, you know, like pretty yeah. soon, like 85% of the people are still, or, or have come down and they're praying and they're like, Oh, okay. And they're crying or doing whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I think it can be like that, but it's got to be used the word conviction earlier. I'm using it in a slightly different sense, but it's got to be an internal conviction, uh, yeah. spirit empowered kind of conviction, not just this sociological kind of, this is what everybody's doing. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, in times past, uh, in Western culture, there was more of an emphasis on controlling yourself until you were married and controlling yourself within marriage. But that doesn't mean that everybody did it. I mean, there were plenty of people who were promiscuous and I mean, that happened outside of Western culture. And so, you know, in our society as well, it's increasingly becoming, it's like to tell people that they should put a lid on any of their sexual appetites. That's oppression. That's violence. And you know, this nonsense. Um, and I mean, I've done premarital counseling with a number of couples who had not waited, you know? And so it's just, even in the church or people who, have some association with the church it's the dots have not always been connected well for them like eh, you know it's not a big deal they're kind of casual about it uh so they you know the purity i don't know if they had purity rings or not but it if so it didn't work yeah so i read a study on this from the national library of medicine and pediatrics which you know is pretty uh, scientific uh and they did a study that showed purity pledgers uh, are actually no less likely to have sex than those who don't uh, don't make purity pledges, which was nuts to me. I mean, that shows how you know how little impact it had on things. So, and actually, there one yeah. of their studies showed that, and another study showed the same thing that most tend to break this pledge within a year of making it, uh, and they have since the nineties mm. as well. And uh, but the funny thing is that you get actually some studies wrongly think that people keep it more. Uh, and the reason why they think it is actually that what happens is that people who break these pledges have a tendency to lie about it. Uh, you know, the majority of them will lie that they never took the pledge when they break the pledge. And uh, so that's all it really <laughs> and the does. Fingers crossed. Yeah, it adds sin to sin, you know. And, and I think this all shouldn't surprise us in li- that these kind of things don't work in light of, you know, Jesus in Matthew 5, 35 through 36 doesn't look highly upon uh, approaching godliness by making unnecessary oaths. You know what I mean? So uh, it, it's about a life of godliness It's not and, and seeking the Lord's face. It's not about these pledges. Yeah, and I think just even broader, I don't know what to make of this, but 
so we like these momentous events sometimes. Like I, I hear people sometimes calling them spiritual markers. And yeah, I mean, there were times, particularly in the Old Testament, where they set up a monument or they set up this altar for this or that. But a lot of the things that they did, it was not just this one-time event. It was an ongoing thing, whether it was the, the Day yeah. of Atonement or uh, the different feasts that they were celebrating annually or a, a weekly Sabbath. And even in our Christian life, yes, we only repent and believe the gospel in a saving way one time, but we are ever going back to the cross. Yeah. Uh, we we gather with God's people, uh, not just on Zoom, but actually in person, <laughs> you know, weekly. And uh, so these, I don't know, the need for this big mountaintop thing, I don't, maybe it's a little misguided, but. Yeah, I agree. So, well, how can our purity teachings be be damaging to women as well? Do you think that purity teachings might be damaging to women? I think that if you're talking about purity teaching in the sense of, you know, 1990s, 2000s, um, some of that kind of stuff, I think that it can. It doesn't have to. And I think I saw it done in a way that wasn't always bad. But it can objectify women. Uh, it can portray them as basically causing male lust uh, that, you know, you need to cover up because if not, all those guys around you are just going to be, you know, drooling on themselves and they just can't help it. Uh, it can give wrong impressions of, of what sex is designed for and God's intentions for it. And so giving an unbiblical ideal of sex. Um, and so those are ways I think that it, it definitely can. doesn't have to, yeah. but I think it could often happen. And there are some worse examples of it, you know, in some places. Yeah, I, I would definitely, I mean, I've read, even recently preparing for this, I read some classic books, even books that are, I mean, surprisingly bought now, like still bestsellers in purity culture stuff today. Uh, and you can see, I mean, pretty clearly there's a greater stigma against sexual indiscretion of women in these kind of things. Uh, and which is, I mean, honestly, that's reflecting our secular culture. So they're more worldly than they think they are. Uh, mm. And they tend to focus, like you kind of applied, um, almost exclusively on female modesty and almost exclusively for male on male's desire uh, for sex, you know. So they kind of like wrongly paint a picture when, you know, there's male modesty issues and there's female issues of, of you know, an overwhelming desire for sex. I mean, females look at more porn than they ever have. Uh, yes, and, and way. Up. Like it's surprising. Like I mean, legitimately, uh, that you know, I think majority of young women will look at porn in, in some way before they get married. I mean, now I think more than half young women will. Uh, and so I mean, it's obviously a misunderstanding of men and women. And sometimes teen girls with certain body shapes get the impression from purity uh, standards that uh, they are never modest. This is one thing we're going to refer to uh, talking back to purity culture by Rachel Joy Welcher, but I not thought about this and she brought this up that, you know, the reality is that sometimes some body shapes, you know, it's cover. You, we don't cover up with burkas, and even if we do, you know, there there are differences in, in, in human bodies, and I think we yeah. can shame some woman that they're not being pure when just they're, you know, they're created a certain way by God, and and that's perfectly fine, and and that's great and God glorifying, uh, as He creates all bodies for His glory. Yeah. Now, is it appropriate for us to teach at all about modesty? Because we've talked about some of the errors in modesty culture, but should we just kind of get rid of modesty talk? See, I think that would be a big mistake. Um, I think that, yes, we should. I mean, Scripture talks about proper adornment. And in in First Timothy, I believe is where it's at, um, Paul addresses some things, and he, he does talk about women. Um, and I think it's not simply, I think there's a little bit more going on there um, and then just, oh, you know, don't, I don't know, you know, like he's not saying modest is hottest or whatever, uh, you know, to borrow a phrase from those days. Yeah. But, um, he's talking about adorning yourself with your character and, yeah. uh, yes, but it, modesty is not just something for women. It, we should address it with, with men as well. But, I think we should do it in a way that it's more general and it trains people's consciences rather than, okay, you're being modest if you do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Uh, like you just mentioned, I mean, not everybody's shape is the same. And so someone who is built, you know, with, with body type A, they could wear something. And then if body type B or C puts it on, it's like, yeah, that's probably not for you. 
Um, and so, yeah, you just can't draw lines for everybody on that kind of thing. And the tough thing, modesty, at least in my opinion, there's some level that it's culturally conditioned. Yeah. And I don't know how to draw all those lines. I mean, it's, I guess, a little bit like the, uh, was it the Justice Blackman that said, uh, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Well, sometimes it's like, I can't exactly define modesty, but I know when I see immodesty. Yeah. Um, and so, there, there's a you're trying to teach people to think about that and reflect on why are you wearing that versus this? What, what are you trying to draw attention to? And uh, yeah, just general principles and less specifics I think can be helpful. But sometimes maybe a, a mother or someone else in the church can come alongside a young woman to help her maybe with some of those specifics, not giving her some sort of new law code but helping her to think specifically about her wardrobe or the things that she, she's been wearing, that kind of thing. What, what are your thoughts? That's good. So, uh, yeah, I would add to this. So, um, I, I think it definitely can be helpful to talk about this in some context. Uh, I think primarily equipping parents to have this talk is the best way to approach it. Uh, but, um, I think actually the the best way to teach them to value modesty is really going to sh- to be to show young people their chief end, their chief purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. And I think often that will flow into all the areas in our lives. And that's I think why holiness is sometimes broad rather than meant to be you know legalistic and rigid, you know, uh, because it changes us and it transforms us into little things. Uh, so I would address this when it comes up in scripture because it does, but I think overly addressing it, even, you know, if you're a youth pastor, it's, it's pretty foolish. Uh, but I think no matter what, avoid unbiblical shame teachings when you address it. That's good. Now, how do we teach our children the call to sexual purity without embracing the er- these errors, specifically for our own children? I think we want to tie sexuality to creation and to new creation, to the gospel, Christ in the church, like the, what God has given us for. It's a, a signpost to, to point our attention to something greater and the joys there um, and the privileges that we and the intimacy that we can enjoy within the, the confines of that covenant relationship, that it's a good thing and not just talk about it in the, with the prohibitions and don't do this, don't do that. Uh, and, and with some of the shame and the things like that, that we've talked about that has characterized it in the past, but helping it to, to point to good news. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the, I definitely think we, you talk about pointing good news and teach them the gospel picture of marriage. Because I think, you know, marriage and all these things are meant to be images of the gospel. And that's such a clear thing we miss in it. Like purity in marriage and that kind of, you know, and the making the marriage of pure is meant to point us toward this image, this typology in scripture of the gospel. But ironically, a lot of the purity culture pushes us away from the gospel and then teach how sex is meant to fit within that beautiful imagery. Uh, And I think we must be clear, uh, purity is a whole life commitment as well when we teach them it. Uh, And, you know, maybe even reflect how, you know, when you get older, when you have older teens, uh, that reflect how, you know, mom and dad have to try to make sure that they're pure in ways. So, uh, and I doubt, don't paint that wrong picture of the wedding night. Just don't do that. Just, that's not helpful. So. No. Uh, now, how can churches promote healthy discussions on this topic, Ben? Um, I think we, in a big, broad sense, I mean, it should be addressed from the pulpit. And if you're going through scripture, it comes up. Um, in a number of places, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, I think ad- address it in your adult teaching context as well. Just what does biblical sexuality look like? What is the purpose of sex? Because, I mean, you talked about how with women, even pornography consumption is on the rise, even that, and I hadn't seen those a majority. I think I had seen some pretty high numbers though, but, you know, our, our adults are being shaped by the culture's presentation of what sex. And it's just this performance and reaching ecstasy or something. And um, it's not about intimacy and connecting in a relationship, a covenant relationship. Um, But then also helping uh, parents, like have a forum where you're actually talking to parents about with their kids. I think you teach 
teenagers about it. And in some ways, you can help set the table with kids. You need to be careful about that because parents are going to be in different places of what they're comfortable with. And I mean, I, I don't think it would be wise to like, we're going to do a 12-week study on the Song of Solomon, detailed exegetical study. And, you know, this is uh, this is what this means. And uh, I mean, they're just that's not what they need. With but the first you can graders, talk right? about uh, gender and marriage and yeah. things like that. That's God's gift to us. And uh, yeah, but with the thing with the parent forum, um, you want to train them to talk about it in their homes. And I mean, maybe you have some kind of panel thing. You have discussions with students, uh, give, giving their parents warning, hey, we're going to talk about this. Um, but I mean, you want to be prayerful about, about how to approach it in a wise way, in a way that's not you know, damaging or giving too much detail. Uh, I mean, like, I think I've told you this story before, but there was a guy in administration at our college who came up, we, we were in this office and uh, we had just gotten engaged and he corners us in the office and there's other people around. He's like, now Ben, I know what you're thinking about right now. You're thinking about sex, but you know, you gotta really gotta stay pure until you're married. I mean, he's just like giving it to me and I'm thinking, I wasn't until you said something and now I'm like really just so uncomfortable and awkward. Whenever we teach this and promote a culture of this in the church, I think we need to always try to make clear our sin is always our own, while at the same time making clear that we are in fact our brother's keepers. Because I think there's a tendency to drift towards one of those two things in approaching the purity aspects. We still are our brother's keepers. I mean, that, you know, back in the Bible and that was originally asked, am I my brother's keeper? The answer should have been, yeah. Yeah, you are. Uh, but at the same time, that no one else is responsible when we sin. No one can make us lust. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, now, uh, just a couple more questions. So how should we react when we find out our kids or someone we minister to, minister to has already sinned in this area of purity culture? Shame them as sternly as possible. Clearly. Um I mean, what we've been talking about, you want to emphasize the gospel and the proper response to the gospel. Uh, So you don't want to just make them feel okay about their sin. Oh, you know, it's okay. But you do want to to give them the hope of the gospel, uh, that Jesus died for our sin, but that the proper response to that is to repent of our sin and to, to turn away from it towards Christ and to hang on to him. Yeah. I mean, you go to a place like Titus 2, where it, verses uh, 11 and 12, and it's that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all and training us to renounce ungodliness and, and worldly passions, these kind of things, and to live a godly life. Mm-hmm. And so his grace to us motivates us and empowers us to move away from that towards what pleases him. And so mm-hmm. um, I think, too, I mean, if you if needed, maybe help them establish patterns and things to prevent that in the future. If they're putting themselves, doing unwise things, putting themselves yeah. in a position, um, not that that fixes all the problems, but it can be something helpful. And sometimes you just got to start from the ground up with folks. Like they just don't even have a clue of, like, I don't know why this keeps happening. Um, it's like, oh, well, because you're going out to this abandoned place by yourself in a car <laughs> and nobody's around. I, what could go wrong? Um, but yeah, so I mean, you can help them in a very practical way, but you can give them. You call it theological or doctrinal hope, but real, real practical hope with yeah. Christ for them. That's good. So, uh, I think that to me, I think we need to start uh, by seeing how they process the the situation. You know, uh, and because the, I think the response should be different if they're sinning willfully or if they stumbled in it. I mean, I actually know of in college, I know a friend who fell into sin. I mean, that stumbled that what he did was wrong, but he was quickly repentant and he was shamed in a profound way, uh, part, you know, partly even by his church, actually, and not helpful. Uh, and we need to navigate that because they're two different approaches to sin, frankly, you know, and they have two different responses. And uh, in that, in responding to that, I don't know who said it originally, uh, but I've heard multiple Christian leaders say that we're called to afflict the comforted and comfort the afflicted. And I definitely think that that is relevant for these kinds of issues. You know, if you're, if a young person is afflicted or is is beaten down by their mistake, our job is to comfort them. If they're like, whatever, you know, our job is to show them the severity of sin. 
So yeah, that's good. Really good. And I lastly, I'd add, don't treat it as the worst sin because it's not the worst sin. Uh, you know, it's yeah. not rejecting the Holy spirit. Uh, but at the same time, help them try to fight it. Right. So, and the last question real quick, what are some resources that are uh, more careful about navigating purity culture that you know of, you know, things that aren't going to shame people, but at the same time, aren't going to say, you know, whatever, sleep with whoever you want. <laughs> when, when's your book coming out? I'm working on it. So, <laughs> uh, you know, really, this is not as much my world, thankfully, um, not having to encourage nine-year-olds to, you know, get their hands off the person next to them. Well, I do, but in a different way. Like, no, stop, stay in your own chair. <laughs> don't fall out of your chair kind of thing. But uh, now I really don't have uh, great recommendations on this. Um, this has been more, I would think, your area. So yeah. what do you have? I So there's a book called Talking Back to Purity Culture by Rachel Joy Welcher. And uh, I had... I didn't want to read it for a while because the, the, the title seems really, really strong and like it's going to over respond. And it doesn't. It is truly excellent. Talking back to purity culture. It is incredibly kind and gracious, but at the same time reveals some of the problems in purity culture. I, I could not recommend. It's one of my favorite books I've read for the in the past five years, to be frank. So, uh, oh, and, okay. and then another one I'd say, and this one doesn't directly come at it in a direct angle uh, but I think it's a really helpful one for young people to understand uh, is uh, a book called Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With uh, by Sam Albury. I've heard of it yeah I've not read it Anyway, so, well, I hope that this has been a helpful listen for, you know, parents of teens for and teenagers themselves may be listening into this. Uh, I think this is an important topic, and it's really easy to go on one extreme, either be like the extreme of, you know, the Orioles or be the extreme of, you know, one of the NL West teams, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, it was good talking to you, Ben. I hope uh, you and our listeners have a great day. Yeah, thanks, you too. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Theological Family Ministry Podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends on social media. All new episodes are available to listen to on Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spreaker, and iTunes. We hope you have a great week, and join us again every first and third Thursday.